Good afternoon. It's just gone six minutes past 12. Welcome to the Midday Report. My name is T.D. Madia. Standing in for Mandy Wiener over the next couple of weeks. We are chasing a series of stories for you this afternoon. We'll start in the Northwest where Safety MEC Silo Lahari is visiting the Popomolef informal settlement. And over 2,000 Impala Platinum Mine workers remain underground. A 21-year-old student charged with the rape and murder of a Jobic teacher. Kirsten Clays continues. He faces cross-examination today. And Nigerian citizens living in Gauteng say they're fed up with the ill treatment by law enforcement officers in this country. And of course we'll track Police Minister Becky Kele, who's out in Sibokeng leading the annual festive season inspection roadshow. Your thoughts on these and other stories are more than welcome. 072 You can send a WhatsApp, a voice note. We'd love to hear from you. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. So I was watching the news, and I'm sure you might have picked it up, um, the issue of the miners who are in a sit-in. It's not the first time I see such a thing where I'm like, what is going on at that particular mine? I always think about think about Blayford and think about Gold One Mine. Um, those are the kind of stories that EWN's Nogukanyam Tambo has been following for EWN. So it's no surprise that I turned to Nogukanyam and I said, what is happening at Impala Platinum? Because we're hearing news of yet another sit-in. Nogukanyam, thank you for joining me. She's now in studio with me to try and dissect the story. There's been, I think it's fair actually to characterize this year as a year of the sit-ins as far as the mining industry is concerned. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, and, and, and again, we're seeing this trend, TD, what some are, are now classifying as copycat sit-ins that we're seeing across, particularly the gold mine sector, as well as the platinum mine sectors here in Joburg and the Northwest. Of course, uh, a bulk of our mining is between those two provinces. But here we are yet again with Implats uh, in Rustenburg, the Bafugeng mine, where we've got 2,000 workers refusing to resurface from uh, two of the shafts at that mine. They've had to uh, close the mines down while they try to deal with that labor dispute. It's unclear, CD, at this point, what exactly those um, demands are, but they are trying to uh, have the National Union of Mine Workers negotiate with the miners underground to get a sense of what it is exactly that they're demanding. They do have some guesses, of course, about what the issues are, but uh, as it stands, you know, they're still just trying to negotiate with the miners uh, to get a sense and to try bring them back up to the surface so that uh, you know, negotiations can continue under more conducive uh, conditions. We are going to speak to the National Union of Mine Workers a little bit later to try and get an understanding of what it is exactly that is the issue. Mm. For you as an observer who watches these kind of events unfold in the mining sector, is there anything different about this particular sit-in? I remember a few months ago, you were speaking about Christmas bonuses. Yeah. It's constant labor disputes. It is about profit share and the likes, as you just said. Yeah. Um, is there anything that stands out in this particular sit-in? There's actually more similarities across these, four, I think that we're sitting on four sit-ins overall since the last couple of months. There are actually more similarities, TD, than there are differences. If we take a look at Gold One uh, Mine, which is actually what the, the, the mine that triggered all of this uh, back in October, there we were sitting with a dispute about the closed shop agreement, uh, which allows the, the mine
line management to organize exclusively with one union. It was NUM there. Uh, and, and AMCO was trying to fight for rights to to be able to to organize. We then had Blay for Mine where they were fighting for Christmas bonuses as well as profit shares, which uh, is somewhat similar uh, to what we're seeing now with the, the, the Implats Bafugeng Mine, who are, as far as we understand, uh, hoping for, you know, to, to get the profit share incentive fixed with the mines. Um, we then also had, uh, of the of those four, we had the third one being Wesizwa's ba- Bakubung Mine, which is also in Rustenburg. And there, as far as we understand, the dispute was around um, uh, the retrenchments, the looming retrenchments, mm. and they couldn't understand for the life of them why there were looming retrenchments when senior, uh, senior managers were also being hired at the same time. So again, more similarities than there are differences, um, you, you know, and so we're seeing that trend uh, overall, that overarching trend being them wanting to, you know, force uh, the management's uh, hand by organizing the sit-ins. And just finally, you've spoken to um, Minerals, Energy, Mineral and Energy Minister Gwena Mantasu recently. I think he also does see it as a trend, I think a worrying one from his perspective. Yeah. Just his views on how to mitigate what this is because from where I stand Nukanya yeah. we will have devastating effects in the long run if we don't nip this in the bud Absolutely. So the first thing that he, you know, was very cautious of doing was bringing in the in, the, the impact, the economic impact, because he says beyond that, we need to be able to see it as a labor issue outside of what the impact would be on, on, on the economy. Because for him, that argument about the impact on the economy takes away from, you know, the essence of the labor, this, the labor dispute itself. But in the instance of gold mine where we had that closed shop agreement, he was very clear about it being outdated and wanting to be in talks with the Labour Department about how we can start to uh, phase out those closed shop agreements because they are, of course, unfair in his terms. Um, you know, they don't allow for the freedom of association for the workers. And so he's in talks, as, as far as we understand, with the Labour Department about how, you know, those we can do away with those and for there to be, um, you know, the fair labour fair, fair labor practices. But in terms of mitigation, it re- he pinned it down to a junior juniorization of HR at various mines. He says, you can't have junior HR managers trying to deal with these long-standing issues. They are going to miss a number of issues. And so you are going to see these quite often if you're seeing these junior mine workers unable to, um, you know, level with mine workers or, or, or or the workforce in general. And so he says we need to make sure that the HR managers at these mines um, have the relevant experience and so that they are able to deal with these issues as they happen. All right, thank you so much. That's Nukuka Nyamdambo from EWN giving us a bit of a breakdown of what's happening at Implats where over, Implats, where over 2,200 mine workers have staged the sit And I think I saw earlier that some have surfaced, but as she says, the issues are more the same. I want to bring in the National Union of Mine Workers that's particularly in that region that's dealing with that area. Maybe they will get a bit of clarity. Jeffrey Mwase joins us now. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. 
I'm struggling to hear. Jeffrey, we'll try that again. I do want to get a sense from the miners themselves, the union rather, about what the tensions are. While I'm waiting for Jeffrey to come on, Nugukanya, there's also been the tensions that you have between an AMCU and an NUM. Again, we yeah. saw this in 2012. You're seeing this again. I saw this definitely playing itself out at Gold One. Mm. The kind of back and forth as well. I imagine, I imagine it's also a factor in all of this. So in this particular instance, we haven't seen a, a second union come to the surface. Uh, as far as we understand, the majority union at uh, Implats is the National Union of Mine Workers. But the tensions between AMCO as well as uh, NUM are longstanding and they're very public. Uh, but in the instance of the Gold One Modi East uh, operation on the East Rand, we did try to see, we, we did at least see them come to the table and try to find an amicable solution without it getting out of hand and without, uh, you know, unnecessary loss of life. Um, with the gold one, uh, you, uh, the gold one matter in particular, CD, uh, uh, we had that um, closed shop agreement, which then ended out of, uh, you know, a voluntary cessation by the National Union of Mine Workers. They had a 30-day period where, um, you know, it, it would lapse in that 30-day period before then AMCO would be allowed to, to organise. So we are sitting at the point where they are able to go to the table and find out how many workers exactly want to join them. But uh, we are seeing here and there a willingness on the part of both unions to try and work together so that these labour issues are resolved uh, amicably. Thank you so much for that. That's Nogukanyam Tambo. Jeffrey is now on the line. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Jeffrey represents the NUM that's out in the region. Thank you again, Jeffrey. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. You are speaking to July. It's not Jeffrey. It's July. Um, I apologize for that, July. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Nogukanyam speaks about the issues of the mine, mine, mining area, saying that they're pretty much the same. The mine says it doesn't know why there is a sit-in that's taking place at Impala Platinum. Can you give us clarity over what is going on? Yeah, we are also amazed of the sit-in underground because as the National Union of Mine Workers, um, we've made sure that members uh, are paid their shares in terms of the uh, ESOPs, and they've moved from uh, Royal Bafugan to Impala. Uh, there's no transition that, that suggests that they, will, they must get their pension fund. So we don't know where this thing's coming from because now our members are of the view that they will be cashing the provident fund and, and they believe that there is an outstanding amount of money that is left in their ESOP, and which is not the case. Um, that, is, that is all, that is all we, we, we understand from the, the NUM side. How did that misunderstanding then come about? If you're saying you're also a little bit like confused as to how this came about, because you understand what should be happening with the cashins, how did this misunderstanding then happen? Have you spoken to some of those who were underground? I understand that some have surfaced. No, no, we we, we did we did um, hear rumors uh, a month ago, and we tried our level best to go around addressing the the members in terms of the quota quota. Um, mass meetings and and it seems to us that they do understand uh, our explanation but uh, over and above that now they're sitting they're staging underground and we are still engaging with our members to understand as to how best can we assist i imagine that you're also having conversations with management as you try and approach this issue because from where i stand i understand operations have been halted um that some some workers have also been recalled while this is un- while, while this is happening 
Yeah, look, um, we know we know for a fact, and we've been representing these members, that um, other members of NUM were suspended a month ago because of the legal mass meeting that they attended without an authorization. And we've attended to that matter. Even though the members were dismissed, uh, we are still having a CCMA process that we will embark on uh, to make sure that we represent our members. All right, thank you so much. That's July Ratibe, an NUM regional chair, explaining what's going on, saying that they are also stumped. They don't necessarily understand what's going on, but they are engaging with their members to try and get some understanding. And as Nogukanya said earlier, that we are starting to see this trend of these sit-ins. Some of them are copycat sit-ins. I think that there is a danger. People being stuck underground for hours on end, it could have devastating effects. And we've seen where labor issues in the mining sector have gone wrong in this country before. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. To KwaZulu Natal now, the DA's KZN leader, Francois Rogers, yesterday confirmed that Beckville councillor Michael Butelezi was arrested. This is in connection with the alleged murder of his family in October. Eyewitness News reported that the councillor in the Ukatamba municipality lost his wife, two daughters and son in a tragic fire. Well, last night he was taken into custody in connection with the incident. Francois joins us now on the line. Thank you so much for your time, Francois. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon and good afternoon to your listeners. Francois, you were informed of Michael's arrest yesterday. What are your initial initial thoughts and initial understanding of how this story, where he was facing a tragedy, has suddenly turned with him now being the main suspect? Well, it came as an absolute shock. Um, just after five yesterday, um, Lieutenant General Mkwanazi, the uh, commissioner, uh, provincial commissioner, phoned me to tell me that uh, Councillor Butlezi had been arrested and that he was a suspect. You know, all along, I'd actually been to the to the scene of the tragedy the morning after, and all along, the information that we'd been given was that somebody from outside had attacked the home. Uh, clearly, now with the evidence that the taps have, it seems to be uh, a totally different story. So it comes as a great shock, but also, you know, the fact that that people, you know, a, a mother. A wife and three children can lose their lives in such a a brutal manner. It just, you know, leaves one a bit stunned and uh, questioning why things like this actually happen. What's, What's wrong with our society? Mm, that's a legitimate question with the rate of gender-based violence and just the murder rates that we see in this country that is constantly a valid question about the state of the country and the society that we're in. In terms of how a DA manages a situation like this, what would be the approach? Well, obviously, we'll give any support that uh, that the investigating team need. Um, we want to see justice. Um, obviously, one is innocent until proven guilty. This process must must unfold, and uh, justice needs to be the order of the day. When it comes to the party perspective, we've now I've now reported this to our federal legal commission. Um, obviously, they now have to look at the severity of the charges taking into account that one is innocent until proven guilty. But um, in all likelihood, there'll, there'll possibly be a suspension. Uh, and as the situation unfolds, if there is more evidence that uh, Councillor Butlezi is behind this terrible deed, then in fact, uh, further steps and termination of membership could well be um, uh, an option.
What happens to his membership while the FLC investigates? Is it automatically suspended? Has to be? Has he, has? Does he have to be informally inform, informally told that he's on suspension? Suspension. What are the processes there? There is, in fact, a, a process that has to be followed. So once the FLC has made its ruling, which I would imagine would be doing the course of today, um, as they were only notified last night, then the councillor has to be notified of the intention of suspension. He has 24 hours to appeal uh, and to state reasons why he shouldn't be suspended. And on, on the conclusion of that process, then a decision will be made. So literally it can take uh, a day or two to, to have that suspension in place. And then just very quickly, does the fear, does the DA rather have any fears that you'll have members turning up to the court supporting a suspect in such a situation? We've often seen it not in the DA, but the ANC, for instance, where people are donning party T-shirts and are out supporting a, um, a suspect in something as major as GBV. We've seen it before. Do you have any fears of people turning out to the courts in DA T-shirts? How do you then manage a situation like that or even prevent it from taking place? Look, I, you know, I've been engaging with uh, some of our members and our leaders in that particular community and everyone is shocked. Everybody is absolutely horrified as as to how this has turned around. I, you know, at this stage, I think uh, the, the shock and horror, I don't think people are wanting to appear in court. There was the, the, the case appeared before Bergville this morning. It's been remanded to the 21st. And uh, I know that one of our leaders was there just to go and follow the, the process of uh, the bail application and the charges. But certainly there's uh, no indication and we wouldn't support uh, people turning up in numbers uh, to politicize a matter of this nature. Uh, one has to always think of the children, the mother and the wife that have lost their life senselessly here. All right, thank you so much. That's DA Kazer and leader Francois Rogers speaking about the councillor um, from Ukahamba who was taken into uh, custody by police over the fire that took the lives of his wife, two daughters and a son, saying that case has been postponed to the 21st of December and warning against party members politicising an issue, a tragedy really, such as this one. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. Turning our attention now to the courts in Gauteng, the bail application of the man believed to be behind the rape and murder of a Joburg teacher, Kirsten Kletz, is continuing for a third day at the Alexandra Regional Court. Like I said yesterday, I've never seen the suspect, in this case, the 21-year-old student, taking to the stand during a bail hearing. EWN's Oren Singh is covering that story on behalf of, of EWN. He joins us now on the line. Oren, thank you so much for joining us. So yesterday, we found out that the teacher, Kirsten Clates, was pregnant at the time of the incident. So not just one life taken in my head, but two. This 21-year-old also attempted to explain why he put on a T-shirt, I believe. What has today been like on the stand for him? Good afternoon to you. Yeah, well, interesting development um, just before I stepped out of court. Um, the accused initially said he was at a party the night before. This was on the 20, 28th of October. And um, the next day, he proceeded into Santon to the George Lear Park, where he went to a restaurant, uh, took a picture of a menu there at the restaurant with the hopes of one day taking his girlfriend there, and then ventured into explore the park. Now, just before I exited court, the state, who are cross-examining the accused, accused uh, pulled up some pictures and showed it to the accused, one of those pictures being taken at five past eight on the 29th of October. 
And that picture was taken off Kirsten Clates herself while she was proceeding to enter the park and resume the my run that she was taking part in. It was taken by the timekeeper. A hundred meters behind Kirsten Clates, the accused is seen entering the park. Um, and this was at about five past eight. Now, this is vital because the accused initially said he had only arrived in Santon on the morning between 9 and 10 a.m. Um, the state now saying they have in their possession through their investigating officer uh, a printout of the accused location that was taken from a cell phone tower that is opposite George Lear Park, placing him at the scene um, at about half past seven that morning. So that's already not working in his favor. His version of events, as opposed to what the state has in terms of the times of where he was and the place he was at those times are not actually working in his favor. So the, accused, uh, the, the, the states are saying that he was at the part at the, uh, at the time on the morning that Kirsten Clates had arrived. She had arrived just before 8 a.m. to the park to participate in this Myron event. And um, he can be seen in one of the pictures entering the park about 100 meters behind Kirsten Clates at about five past eight on the morning. I was actually going to ask you because I understand that the state has made a decision to not release the video, but instead has been showing stills from that particular event. And I think you've answered my next question where I was wondering what else have their photos given away um, in terms of what they understand of the case. I also assume then, Oren, that the, what he then put before them is not believable by the state at all. His version of events about the T-shirt, I mean, not stalking her, they don't believe at all. Um, definitely. Um, there, is, there is doubt being cast about his version of events at the, at the present moment, TD. Um, but I think what's also important is some of the other photos that were shown, shown in court this morning to the accused. And just to bear in mind is that this is the first time the accused has been shown these photos as well as his defense. His defense actually standing up in court in this morning and objecting, saying that, look, we haven't even seen these photos that the state are now um, placing before court. And we haven't had a time to consult with our, uh, with our clients on these photos. But nevertheless, they let the court proceed. Um, and this morning, they, he was presented with photos of Kirsten Clates um, that were taken during the post-mortem. He alleged that when he found her deceased in the park, um, laying down with a, a rag over her, there was only a cut on her, on her cheek. He says that there were some uh, scratches on her neck and so forth, but he didn't see that much. But the photos that were presented to him this morning uh, showed her um, a lot of bruising to her face, to her lips, um, to her cheeks, um, to her neck and her ears. And um, we haven't seen the photos personally. I don't think the court will allow the public and the, the media to see those photos. But from what the accused was describing in the dock of what he was seeing, it sounds like Kirsten Clates was uh, seriously injured and beaten mm. during the struggle um, leading up to her murder. All right, thank you so much. That's EWN's Oren Singh. Already sounds like there's damning evidence working in this particular student's fa- um, working against the student's favor. I see live proceedings are happening at the moment. I'm going to take you, let's dip into that court proceedings now to listen to a little bit of that matter where the bail hearing uh, is, is taking place. Um, we, we believe we have to act ethically, and that's what we strive for. If my left colleague is getting irritated um, about any other thing, we are sorry. As I was saying, we are in position of the PM report. In terms 
and that this will be provided, be given to the defense. There's no intention on the part of the state to ambush the defense. That is appearing in the PM report. You can note it. State is not bringing any information without the support. So you're listening to a little bit there in the court, in the Alexandra Magistrates Court, where that back and forth is happening over the 21-year-old student who is before the court um, applying for bail in relation to the rape and murder of Jobic teacher Kristen Clates. And as Orin Singh pointed out, there's this back and forth over the post-mortem report. So when they're speaking about the PM report and saying that the state is not trying to hide it, that is about the post-mortem report and what the state has seen, sounding like damning evidence really being built up against this 21-year-old student. If you're wondering why we're not naming him, he can no longer be identified as per the Criminal Procedures Act, which prohibits the identification of the accused in sexual offence cases until they plead, after the state has changed the charges, of course, from murder to include rape in this particular case. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. Hello, you're listening to the Midday Report. My name is T.D. Madia, standing in for Mandy Wiener. It's now 12.34. We are continuing. I want to go back to a story I spoke about a little bit earlier where I spoke about the mass murder that took place in the Northwest over the weekend. So I understand that today, Northwest Safety MEC Selola Hari is visiting the Popomolefe informal settlement just outside of Rustenburg. He's due to meet with the families of nine people who were gunned down in a mass shooting over the weekend. Eight others were injured. We are joined now by his spokesperson, Lucas Mutibedi. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. The MEC's um, visit today, just the importance of going there and the message that yes. he has for grieving families in the area. Well, MEC Lahar has been very clear in terms of the approach and what needs to happen, particularly given how the people were gunned down. In fact, it were the news that we just got when we got here, when MEC Lahar was meeting some of these families, that the ninth person has died and this is a, a unborn child of a woman who was part of the people that were shot. And the baby, unfortunately, did not survive in hospital. So MEC Lahar is here to assure them that police are doing everything in their power to ensure that perpetrators or people that are suspected to have been behind this heinous crime are arrested. So MEC also, also sent a message of condolences to the families. Also um, assuring that the government is there for them to assist them in terms of the funeral arrangement. And if other people who are said to be coming from Eastern Cape need some logistical assistance or financial assistance in distance, government will avail all the um, logistics. Okay, so government is going to help with making sure that those who need to travel and the, bu- the burials are taken yes. care of. So government will come in to support the families in that regard. Of course, that's clear. That is, this is actually the message that MEC Lahari was communicating to the families of the victims. But what we also uh, communicated to the local is that police visibility, I mean, MEC has just announced that a 53 task team um, officers have been dispersed in the area. That will include the 100 other officials that have been dispersed here. Remember that there's an, a retaliatory incident. We hear that about 40 sharks were allegedly banned by the Kosa-speaking people, and this incident is it's said to be a retaliatory um, incident or revenge, in other words, from uh, these uh, Kosa-speaking um, people to against the Lesotho-speaking people. So MEC Lehar is trying to quell the raging flames or the simmer tension that we see here in 
Buitikong. You remember that Buitikong has been a problem, particularly when it comes to crime uh, trends in the northwest province. Buitikong alone is one of the most uh, problematic uh, area. If you look at Buitikong Police Station, for instance, it's leading in the province in terms of murder, in terms of contact crime, um, uh, in terms of uh, GBV. So MEC Laharis, I promised the locals that there will be a dialogue uh, on the 18th of January next, next year, or next month rather, we will be coming here also to try to have a crime in Bizo where we try to get both groups that have been at loggerheads for some time, us and the Lesotho Nationals, to say we, we need to find a way to live in harmony. We need to find a way to make sure that the Northwest Province as is um, peace prevail in this area. You've touched on a few issues I wanted to pick at. So I want to go back to what is believed to be behind this attack over the weekend. You said that it was seen as a retaliatory attack. Some people are linking it to livestock. At some point, I thought it was linked to maybe Zamazama activity. But you're saying that it is about retaliation. What does the MEC understand? What does the department understand in terms of what the battles has been between the Basotho-speaking yes. people and the Kosa-speaking people? Because you make mention of the two groupings as well. Yeah. Well, from the brief that the MEC Lehari has got this morning from the local police station is that there was an incident of stock theft. And after from, well, there's an allegation from the Lesotho Nationals who are saying that uh, their, their goats were stolen. And it later found that uh, in September this year, about 40 sharks were then banned, allegedly, by the Kosa-speaking people as a revenge. But later yesterday, I mean, on Saturday, um, the unfortunate incident also um, um, happen. So what we have been gathering, particularly from the local police station here, is that there has been a sporadic incidents, sporadic attacks from both sides. So MEC Lehar is trying to find a better way to ensure that there is a dialogue between the two. I mean, just today, he's just, he has just engaged some of the people that lost their families who have made a painstaking appeal to MEC to do what they said is a door-to-door, to go house-to-house to ensure that some of the illegal weapons that were used here, because they are saying that there are proliferation of illegal weapons in, in the area. So they would want a missile to facilitate a program where, you know, a search and seizure op- uh, operation will then be conducted in the area. But that's not only here. We just had an area called Marang um, here in Rustenburg, w- which the local mayor has touted as a no-go area. They are unable to go there because there are illegal connectivity of water and electricity. So she also made a painstaking appeal to MEC to come and try to intervene in, in this area. All right, thank you so much. That's Lucas Mutiberi, who's spokesperson for the Northwest Community Safety MEC Solo uh, Lehari. They are out in the Popomulev informal settlement. And as he says, that this seems to have been a retaliatory attack. It has been going on for some time. There's been stock theft. But also that the area is known for high levels of crime and that there'll be increased police visibility. But government will also be supporting the families of those who lost their loved ones. Remember, nine people were gunned down in a mass shooting over the weekend. Let's take a quick break and we'll continue after this. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. Hello, Tiri. This is Ditiro from Timisa here. Look, I think the way the mine workers are doing it, like when they strike, they just sit in underground. And then to, to compel the, 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 the mining uh, management to appear to their grievances, I think it's a, it's a way to go. In that way, they are safe. Uh, there won't be police brutality and everything, like what happened in Marikana. 
So I think the way they are doing it, it's more safe here. And we are avoiding the tragedy of Marikana to happen again. Thank you so much for that voice note. It is an interesting take to say, is the certain, are the citizens rather a better way to manage the situation? For me, the citizens also have devastating impact. I think, don't get me wrong, we've got to do all that we can as a country to never, ever return to what happened in August at the Inkane Nkopi in Marikana. It must never, ever happen in this democracy again. However, the citizens, if you've pay, paid attention, the, some of the miners also come up beaten and hurt. Um, some of these citizens turn into, into kidnap or host, also hostage situations. So they too could have a devastating impact. And don't you run out of air underground? So there's all these other things. I do understand the need to hold capital to its word and to find some way to protest. But there's also the danger of it all. That's, that's what concerns me about the citizens. Is that is there no other way to make your views heard? Because I do understand you must bring operations to a halt to be heard. But is there no other way? Thank you for your voice notes. Keep them coming. 072-702-1702-072-567-1567. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. So yesterday, the ANC president, Sal Ramaphosa, was asked by journalists about his predecessor's announcement um, that he will be supporting the Umkonto with Sizwe party. Then Sal Ramaphosa said, uh, we, we, heard the, we, we heard the president's um, announcement and we noted and he didn't give us much more. KwaZulu Natal, ANC came out speaking, spitting fire really, saying that this is a fake Umkonto with Sizwe. Then you had Mavusom Simang, who is a veteran of the ANC, who had resigned now back in the party, but Mavusam Simang then says the ANC owns Umkonto with Suzu because with all of this that's going on, this party is registered with the Independent Electoral Commission, so it's good and ready on paper to contest the 2024 elections. However, the ANC has threatened to take it to court, so that brings about the conversation around trademark. Many don't expect the NC to have trademarked the name Umkonto Sizwe. I think the argument as far as the IEC is concerned that this is not a political party and that's why it wasn't an issue to register it. I think there was an article in the City Press about this a few months ago. I don't think the issue would have been to register it as a party because it didn't exist as a party before. And the IEC's, um, I think the IEC's requirements are very different from what would be regarded as far as trademarks are concerned. So I want to bring in an expert to help us make sense of this. Maneling my peak founder and director of the Mapike of Mapika Attorneys joins us now. Mane, if I may call you that. Hi, welcome. Mm. I'm happy to speak to you. Oh. <laughs> the varsity person. Hi, Hi. good afternoon. How are you? I'm very good. Please help yes. me. This is a legal so, question, so I definitely need your assistance. Um, the battle over trademarks is not necessarily a new thing, and I think it's a battle that will rage on for a while. Is it as simple as we understand it to be? Is it a question of, does the ANC own the name uh, Umkonto sees where does it not when it goes to the courts how does a thing like this play out okay so i think the long and short of it is that the nc actually has made an application for the registration of the trademark of the verbal um uh, name of umkonto wesizwe and umkonto wesizwe veteran liberation movement so they've made those trademark applications and you know strangely enough it was made this year in september so it might have been some sort of intervention having known that this particular party is coming um forward but even with that said you know, how with the trademark, you don't necessarily always have to register it. If you have shown that you've used it and there is 
goodwill that you've created and reputation and somebody else uses wants to benefit off that goodwill it's a concept that we call passing off in trademark law so you don't necessarily have to register it but it creates certainty when it is registered so the ANC can show that it's been affiliated with this particular movement and the name Mkunto Wasizwe for as long as it's been in existence and that you know this is something that is recognized as a movement that operates ancillary to the ANC. What would the IC, that's a very interesting, what would the IC have had to consider? Because for me, this is not a political party. It wasn't, at least when it was registered. Mm. And the IEC would have had an issue, Was if it was registered in existence as a party, would this have an impact at all on the party that's now registered? Would they have to go back to the drawing table with regards to the issue of the name? Look, so from, from the assessments that the IEC conduct in how they determine whether a name can be registered, a political party can be registered. You know, I'm not an expert in that in that area. Mm. However, from just practicing general, you know, when you look at the ballot paper, there's a lot of different, you know, there's the Which ABC, are all mostly so ABC, similar looking so, though. You know what I mean? All of them are exactly. So it just goes to show that their concern as the IEC might not necessarily be from a trademark perspective, but more from a, you know, the, the actual party, the name of the party. I mean, there's that African Democrat, I think it was called African Democratic Change. Um, you know, and there's the African National Congress. And so mm. all of that sounds very familiar. And then there's, you know, Congress of the People and the and even the in other books, they parts, all, you know. <laughs> when you think you about the I mean? AIC versus the ANC, I uh, do know that Action SA had a struggle with the IEC, but that was a yeah. of reflections of our flag. It was a question yes, about absolutely. using the colors of our flag. That I know is an issue for the IEC. Yes. Let me ask you, a battle like this, how long would it take in the courts? You're saying that what you know in September, the ANC did make an application, but the yeah. ANC also has the track record to show that since this name came into existence, it was used in relation to the the ANC, but how long would a fight like this then take place? Because I'm wondering whether or not this would Im- impact this new party and its chances of participating at the polls. Look, from from, a, from an ANC perspective and just from a trademark perspective, if you've registered, if you've made an application for registration of a trademark and it's not yet granted to you, you still have a right of protection from the date that you made that application. So with that said, because it was, the application was made, I think it was the 19th of September this year for that. And we also know that there has been that use, you know, going into a court battle and now, you know, from a sake of urgency, whether they would be able to succeed by interdicting the party on an urgent basis. That's also an assessment that needs to be made. When did they find out about this particular political party and the intention to use this new name? Did they only wait for the announcement to be made? And if they waited for the announcement to be made, why did they wait so long? Because they already knew about it. Hence, they then made the application. But if it goes in the ordinary course, you know, in the ordinary course, it could really take as, you know, between six months to even three, four years to battle this out. And with the, with the elections, you know, coming um, in the coming in the coming year, it might make it a bit tricky. But I think if the NC does then do do an urgent application on a part A, they might argue for urgency on a part A to say that in light of the elections coming up next year and the confusion that this will cause um, at the polls and whether it is affiliated with the ANC or not, and the whole issue of passing off as a defense that we have, you know, we have created this goodwill and reputation. Perhaps they might be able to win on urgency in, in that regard, but that would require different assessments. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would anticipate that anything beyond uh, between six to even longer than three years yeah. to, to argue this in a court of law. 
it's actually very tricky, this particular matter. I don't know if you've okay. ever seen that there was an NPO, supposedly, that had yes. registered, um, yes. supposedly in 2014. I don't know yes. if that's a fake document that we are seeing on social media. I don't know if there's any merit to that to, to that particular um, um, mm. document that we've seen and whether it means anything when it comes down yeah. to it. I don't know if you've seen again. It says it's I an NPO. Seen. Some have said to me that, you know, it's not necessarily surprising to find that there are NPOs that are linked to the ANC. Your sense mm-hmm. of that document? So the document itself is valid. I went and did a, a search on on the IP online platform for the CIPC. So it is a valid application and it is under a project, an, an NPO called the Legacy Project. And yeah, it was, it, the application was made in 2014. However, the registration was accepted in, in 2018 or recognized in 2018. So, and it expires next year in August 2024 um, because it is a 10-year protection that you have from the date of registration. So that document is valid. It is in existence. Um, you know, I did try to conduct the search. You know, I just like, um, I was trying to figure out if it is actually affiliated to the ANC or not, but couldn't really identify whether this legacy project is is part of the ANC. That would be my development. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. I'll, <laughs> I'll go look into that. Thank you. Thank you so much yes. for your time, Mane. Thank you. That's Mane Leng Mapike, founder and director of Mapike Attorneys, helping us make sense of a little bit of the issue of the trademark, saying that actually the ANC has made an application. It did it in September. Again, remember, I said to you in September, that's when the reports first surfaced that there is this Umkonto with Caesar party that's spoken to this particular gentleman linked to it, which now ANC Secretary General Figuilin Barula says is not affiliated with the MK. So that story will take many turns until it's finalized. But again, the ANC there might trump them purely based on usage. For over 60 years, Umkonto Wissuzo was associated with the governing party. Let's take a quick break and then we'll go to Sibukeng. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. Actually, let's start in Sibukeng, where Police Minister Becky Trele is there. I understand that he's there to inspect a safer festive season operations in the province. Tabiso, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Um, good afternoon, Sidi. So they are in specifically Sibukeng, if I'm correct. Do you understand why they picked to do a pit stop in Sibukeng today? Well, Sibukeng is one of the... Uh, the cities um, that obviously um, leads in crime, but not just um, any crime, but specifically um, CIT robberies. Now, you'll understand that as we in the festive season, um, there is something that the minister alluded to, that there does tend to be a rise in CIT robberies. And um, just speaking specifically, obviously, this is a Gauteng um, safer season inspection. Um, the minister saying that, you know, Gauteng is a very interesting uh, province in that a lot of people actually leave the province during this period. However, that, that, that does not mean that um, police obviously should rest their guard. So now in terms of deployment, um, I can tell you, Didi, that the SANDF will be working with um, the police. So the soldiers will obviously be... Um, be positioned around obviously the seats, the countries um states landmarks and obviously those areas that are along the highways well obviously the police will deal with the, obviously the ground in terms of uh, crime prevention so um just obviously the minister just here to make sure that the deployment is obviously um up to shape and we do see obviously amapanyaza we will speak to the minister um about what that new um legal status about Amapanyaza. 
Tanya will they meet traffic officers. The, mm. Yes, we will speak to the minister later um, in, in a couple of moments about what that means to them. So obviously, just a very much show of strength here by the police saying that, you know, they are obviously ahead of the crime here in Gauteng. Mm. So you're yet to speak to the police minister, but help me understand very quickly, the SANDF's involvement in Gauteng, has he explained the capacity? I mean, we've seen them in the past being on standby, but we've also seen them get involved and be heavy-handed when dealing with citizens. What capacity will they be assisting the police in during this period? Yes, um, Tidi. Um, so, as I said, they, they would be obviously um, deployed towards the national key points. Um, so, you, the, for maybe a lot of ordinary citizens, you might not ex- exactly spot them on the streets. They won't exactly be there on the streets. So, they'll be guarding those, obviously, those national key points. So, those include your airports, your highways, um, and obviously your, your government buildings that are, are, are very important. Um, the minister, I can say Didi, that the minister, he did touch on that heavy-handedness. He said that while he does understand that police work under pressure, and that's especially with CIT robbers, and CIT robbers are very heavily armed, mm. that the police do have to respond in kind. He did say, obviously mentioned that police also do have to make sure that they are on the right side of the law, and there is a difference between the criminals and the police. All right, thank you so much. That's Tabiso Koba, who's out in the violence weekend, specifically where Police Minister Becky Trele is inspecting safer festive season operations in the province. Let's take a quick break now. Are you ready for your next vehicle? With We Buy Cars, you're truly spoiled for choice when it comes to their massive selection of cars, bikes, bikes, and more. Browse through 10,000 vehicles online or visit your nearest We Buy Cars branch, vehicle finance, insurance, and more available in store. Visit webuycars.co.za and start browsing for your next vehicle. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. We are fast running out of time, but before the show ends, I wanted to speak to Frank Onyokwele. I want to get his surname right. Frank is the president of Nikasa. Good afternoon, Frank. Welcome to the show. Frank is president of the Nigerian Citizens Association of South Africa. And I understand that they were holding a protest yesterday. I saw an interesting article on the Times Live by Rorisan Khosana writing about the plight of Nigerians living in Gauteng. They marched to the office of Gauteng Commissioner Lieutenant General Elias Mawela to hand over a memorandum. Frank, I don't have much time, but help me understand the essence of the memorandum. What is contained in it? What are Nigerian citizens living here concerned about? Thank you so much for having me this uh, afternoon. Uh, Greetings to the viewers and listeners, uh, Oliver. Our concern as Nigerian citizens is to cry out that our voice must be heard in the recent events that have happened in our communities where our citizens were brutalized, harassed, shops were broken into, monies were stolen, Things we are damaged in the name of fighting or trying to comb the community. And this has to be victimizing even innocent people and uh, citizens that are doing genuine and their living businesses. So we are taking a stand to say that enough of this. Uh, nationality is not a crime. We cannot be branded in this uniform every now and then and we are running 
here and there. The climax of it all is a Nigerian citizen that died in the hands or in the custody of the police, which we have not gotten closure yet. Mm. So these are all that are contained in the memorandum submitted yesterday. All right. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. The memorandum that Frank is referring to also speaks about an incident that happened over the weekend where a Nigerian um, citizen died in police custody. I understand that the independent police directorate is investigating. And I also know that part of what they're calling for, this grouping called Nekasa, is for greater communication between Nigerian governments and South African governments about trying to manage some of the tensions between South Africans and Nigerians.